Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Just a note, I said Alexis and my Alexa wanted to go off, so... (laughs) (laughs) I've heard this is a problem for many. (laughs) This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and the Wall Street Journal. This week, we're talking about microplastics and what they're doing to the environment and the fashion industry's responsibility to help address it. We've heard plenty about the giant plastic trash island out in the Pacific and the beaches across the globe that are littered with plastic bottles and bags. But we're talking today about plastic microfibers, the tiny ones that make up the majority of apparel produced today. Those nearly invisible fibers have been found at every depth of the ocean and make their way into the food chain and into our bodies. They are commonly found in apples and carrots, lettuce and broccoli, and they've recently been found in 20 24 of 36 samples of human breast milk. This is a big deal. We're going to spend the whole episode on it today, and we are thrilled to have Dr. Alexis Jackson from the Nature Conservancy here to help us understand the enormity of the challenge ahead. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? Going great, Christina. How are you? I am well, thank you. And the CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, is coming to us, as always, from South Salem, New York. Hey, Sheila. Hey, Christina. Are you in the basement again? I'm in the basement okay. again. Okay, I got to stop asking because you're just <laughs> always in the basement, right? This is not... I'm just always... Okay. Just assume that I'm in okay, the basement. I'll let you know when I'm not in the basement. <laughs> <Okay>. Right, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Do let us know. Okay. I, I, I want to point out for our listeners that Christina is drinking a drink that looks just like a beer. I'm convinced is a beer. She said it's, it's not. She says it's quote unquote vitamin B1. It Except it's so, this is not a beer. It's called Ting and it's, um, ting. it's Ting. And it's a it's a not vitamin tang. B drink, tang, not though. Tang, but I think that's probably why they named it. I'm totally forgetting. It's Moon Juice. It's from Moon Juice, which oh, I'm like. So you're saying you're stuff. drinking a fifty dollar beer? Fifty dollar <laughs> <laughs> Moon Juice. We're just jealous. Everything that's that, what it yes, is. Yes, I'm very jealous. <laughs> Let's jump right into the conversation today on microplastics. We know the fashion industry is a major contributor to climate change thanks to the carbon emissions associated with producing clothing and shipping it around the world. But there have been a number of recent studies that make clear the impact of microplastics are having on the planet. Short answer, it's bad. The Guardian recently reported on a California study that found that in 2019, 13.3 quadrillion, I don't even know what that is, a quadrillion microfibers from polyester clothing were released into the environment there. That number, quadrillion, is just mind-boggling. And mind you, that was just in 2019. Those tiny fibers make their way into all areas of the ecosystem, including the water we drink and the food we eat, and we're only beginning to understand what impact it may have on our health. For a topic this important and this big, we knew we needed an expert. We have with us today Dr. Alexis Jackson, one of the authors of the study we just mentioned. She serves as the Ocean Policy and Plastics Lead for the Nature Conservative 
University's California Oceans Program. Since getting her degree in ecology and evolutionary biology from Yale University and a master's and PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology from the University of California, Santa Cruz, Alexis has been conducting policy research and advising institutions and policymakers on reducing plastic pollution and restoring ocean habitats. She knows microplastics probably as well as anyone. We are so glad to have you here. Welcome, Dr. Jackson, but we'll call you Alexis today, right? Yes, please call me Alexis. I'm really uh, glad to be here chatting with you all today. Sheila and Rachel, great to see you guys again. Um, I met them on a panel at South by Southwest. Alexis, to start, I recently read that most of us eat roughly five grams of microplastic per week. That's about a credit card's worth. And that sounds really bad. It it freaks me out a little bit, to be honest with you. What do we know about why that's bad for our bodies, for the planet? Yeah. So, you know, microplastics is a challenging one because in general, when people think about plastics, they think about bottles and wrappers and the things that we see on the street on beaches. They don't think about the small fragments of plastic, mostly because a lot of these are almost invisible to the eye. We're talking five millimeters or smaller. Um, And they can be shed from a variety of items, right? Like they get what happens when bottles break down in the environment um, or in the case of microfibers, which come from the synthetic or plastic-based clothing that we wear, it's actually being shed from our clothes, either while they're being produced um, as textiles or designed and dyed and it's entering water or when we're washing our clothes and they're being agitated, which is great for cleaning dirt, but also results in these fabrics shedding all of these kind of fibers. Um, And depending on kind of what treatment facilities are like for our water, uh, those can be filtered out, but maybe reapplied onto fields. That's what we see in California. That study that you mentioned, it was very eye-opening. We're like, we've been doing all the right things. We're trying to manage water. And now we're actually bringing these microfibers out into the environment. Um, And it's challenging to have, whether it's microfibers or other small plastics in the environment, because They can be absorbed by wildlife who are in those waters, right? So it's like small animals at the bottom of the food chain, maybe consuming them. If they're entering things like our agriculture and our food and our fields, then we can be consuming them. We know that they're found in a number of organs across the body. We know that we can breathe them in and they've been found in our lungs. The long-term implications of that, we still don't know, right? Like that's where we have learning to do. But it's probably not a, a net positive, right? Because these, <laughs> these, these plastics, <laughs> when they're out in the environment, are basically a substrate for all sorts of different chemicals. They can take up chemicals of the things that they're attached to when you're designing clothing or other plastics. So it's not really that you're just eating plastic. It's that you could be eating some of the other negative things that are kind of out in the environment that are attached to them, right? And so that's the challenge there is that we know some of those things are very bad. We've had long-term studies on those, and so we should avoid having plastics in our body at all or in our drinking water. Alexis, can you back up really quick? Because one of the most surprising things to me about microfiber capture and how it gets back out into the environment is that sludge component. Can you go into that a little bit more for our listeners? Like, ah, sludge. Yes. Sludge. Everybody loves sludge. Lovely. Marine biologists <laughs> by training, spending a lot of time kind of talking about poop-like substances. Oh, God. Um, So when we wash our clothes, um, those like the effluent from our washing machine goes in a lot of places to a wastewater treatment facility. And in California, we have really great wastewater treatment. And so they're actually filtering out um, almost like 95% of the things that are in water. That's great. So they capture a lot of the microfibers. 
The challenge that we have here is that we are water restricted. So in a state like California, we want to be reusing that water. Um, and some of that is basically then being used. All of the things that we captured to so the microfibers plus the extra water are then being used on fields. And so while we captured them, that was great. But now we've let them back out into the environment. And while we don't exactly know the exact pathways, there have been studies that have been done in the San Francisco Bay. And we know that those microfibers are one of the dominant forms of microfiber that actually make it into water bodies. And so that's the challenge there, right? Is that like in trying to solve one problem, we caused another. Um, and so we have to come up with thoughtful solutions to kind of nip that before they're entering um, our water bodies and lands. Alexis, so you, you mentioned this, it, um, microplastics can come from a, a few different sources. I know there there was uh, a while back a lot of attention on the those microbeads and beauty products. I know tires, there are, other, there are other types of products that are shedding these microplastics. Can you share about why, why textiles gets, given that there are so many sources of microfibers, why does textiles get um, a lot of attention? When we kind of looked at, like, there are a number of industries, right? Almost every industry is using plastics. Um, and so how do you figure out, like, where to start, right? Like, what's the right intervention, for us, we wanted to make sure that we had kind of a strategy that addressed plastics of all sizes and some of the most emerging threats. And so for us, that was the bigger single-use plastics in the foodware and packaging. And so there was a bill that we were played a very large role in passing here in California around reducing production of single-use plastics. And then on the small side, right on like the invisible side, we were interested in microfibers specifically and around textiles because... Um, that shape of all of the different kind of like shapes of microplastics, it's one of the most likely to actually enter into like at the cellular level into bodies, right? And so we're like, okay, we should start with that as a focal area. Um, and then we also are fully aware of the fact that for a lot of problems, like you need to figure out a solution that does full life cycle, right? So while some of the research that we started was very much at the washing machine level, that's kind of like, that's very much the downstream end of the problem. Um, and we know now um, from some kind of high level research that we've done, um, it hasn't been peer reviewed, um, but estimates on like the magnitude from the upstream side of the problem is almost as big as the washing machine downstream. So we can't just tackle one, right? Which means thinking about partnerships with, you know, brands and textile mills and the people who are closest to that problem. Because, you know, once people learn about it and become aware of the threat, no one wants that, right? Like everyone, I think, genuinely wants to reduce their impact while also maintaining the opportunity to run businesses. And we are very aligned with that. I think that's something that at the Nature Conservancy, we do really well, right? Is like partnering with all the key st stakeholders so that everyone can thrive, right? People and nature and kind of addressing solutions. It, is part of the focus on textiles also because of their disproportionate share of shedding as well as you talked about? Yeah, you know, and also the projection, right? So like we know that in the next, I'm like what year is it? 2022? <laughs> like in the next 20 <laughs> some odd years, we're going to almost see like a tripling of that sector and therefore a tripling of the potential magnitude of harm. And maybe it doesn't even scale at the same parallel, right? Like is there a threshold at which there's too much harm from those fibers entering systems? So yeah, like it's one of those things that like it scales with population growth as well, right? Like consumption of clothing and all of those things. So the threat, just like with the foodware and packaging on the single use like plastic side, also just gets worse. 
Uh, so, uh, Alexis, uh, you've uh, just to back up a little bit. I have sort of a broad question for you, and I'll, I'll I want to fill in the blanks. You've yeah. led and spearheaded efforts in this area for a really long time. Um, prior to TNC, you worked for the Pew Charitable Trust. Um, and the NOAA fisheries with a focus on scientific research and policy um, on the fishery level. Now, for full transparency, I currently have the opportunity to work with you and your team as a strategic advisor, which has been really exciting, and um, on microfiber pollution on the textiles level, which for me has been a joy and a pleasure. And it's such a departure from my downstream focus to going into the upstream focus. And it's I'm learning every day from you all. And um, I just um, I'm going to ask a question I never predicted I would ask or construct. Fashion versus Uh the fishing industry. So, okay, I need to know more. (laughs) What are the similarities and differences in your work when thinking about engaging with fisheries versus, let's say, textile mills and fashion brands? And and what's the industry responsiveness of fishing versus fashion? You know, uh, when people often ask me about, you know, I'm a scientist by training, and I found my way into policy because I was continuing to kind of track my interests and passions, right? I was like, yes, I love the research, but I also really enjoy talking with people, meeting with people, paring down the science to kind of the nuggets that are that matter, like, right? Why does this research matter? Why is it important in this particular instance? And so the skill sets that I feel like I acquired from when I was doing more fisheries level engagement, like when I first started at NOAA, I had finished my fellowship are not actually dissimilar from the skill sets that I use now in engaging with companies or consultants or technicians because it's a people-to-people dynamic, right? And so like getting to know people, getting to understand their pain points and kind of bringing a listening ear and understanding like when and where it kind of makes sense to like leverage information that is relatable based on what you're hearing, right? Like it feels the same to me. So no, I'm not out on boats anymore, Um, and I find myself like in indoor spaces far more than sounds normal for a marine biologist. Um, Oh, interesting. But the conversations are the same, right? Like they're, it's a fishing business. It's a clothing business, right? And so it's like bottom lines and like profitability matter to them. So does sustainability, but measuring those kind of trade-offs and how much of a trade-off they're willing to accommodate is a part of the conversation, right? Like how do you create a balanced solution that works for me as someone who's an environmental advocate and for um, an industry or business. And so, again, I think that's something, you know, we oftentimes are bringing all of those people together. Like we are representing the nonprofit voice. We are bringing together fishermen partners or urchin divers or like whoever the partner is. Um, And yeah, just like sitting down, I'm like, I love to do that over like a beer or a glass of wine and just get like candid and sketch some solutions out. What are solutions for the fashion industry and what are solutions for me shopping for clothes for my family? Like, I, you know, do we just have to stop buying polyester or making polyester? Yeah, so a few things, right? So no silver bullet on anything in plastics. It's going to take businesses and individuals and like advocates, like everyone to kind of move the dial on this. On the consumer side, I think it's important for consumers to know that this is a problem, to be aware of it so that they can make informed decisions. That being said, I think that it is critical that some of the responsibility fall on the people who are actually designing the products that cause harm. And so first they have to know that there's a problem and then they have to be open-minded or willing 
to kind of problem solve or troubleshoot in that. So like, yes, you know, consumers can think about everything from changing the temperature of the clothes, like the clothes um, cycle. So it's like colder, shorter loads is often like the recommendation on the washing side. Uh, Even the type of washing machine that you have, if you're buying a new one, having a front loading versus a top loading can make a difference in agitation and fiber shit. So it's like, can you explain that one? Yeah. I've seen that one a couple of times and I'm like, why, how would that make a difference? And I think it might just be the way that the clothes get, again, like agitated that makes a difference. I'm like, I don't know the internal mechanics. I will be honest <laughs> when I'm like, I'm like, am I about to make something up? I'm like, no, I don't know. I read about that, something related. It's because the the top loaders have those paddles and the paddles beat on the clothes and that's oh, how they get clean. But the front loading doesn't have paddles. They, things just, the clothes go up to the top and then they fall down. And they sort of clean, right. they're cleaning themselves in that way. So it's much, okay. the, the top loaders are harder on your clothes in every way. Yeah. Interesting. Got it. Yeah. Wow. And so, yeah. So like on the consumer end, right? Like, and then you can make decisions about the type of materials that you want to purchase as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, on the kind of like brand side, right? Like, Can, can, can yeah. I pause you right there? Just on the materials. Can you share more? Um, what should we be looking for in materials? Yeah. So I don't think it's that I'm like necessarily an advocate for like thou shalt on any mm-hmm. material. I think you just have to be conscious of the fact that it's like all materials shed, right? And have the potential mm. to shed how those materials are then treated when they then fragment, right? Like whether it's natural based or synthetic, it can essentially serve again, like as I was mentioning earlier, as like a surface for chemicals once it's out in the environment. Mm -hmm. So we kind of are like neutral around actual fabric choice and just like want to address the actual like fragmentation um, because it can be bad. Yes, some may break down at faster rates in the environment, but if they're carrying dyes that are toxic, chemicals that are toxic when they're sitting out in the environment, they might do similar harm, Mm -hmm. even though they might persist for, you know, a less amount of time. So that's something. So my cotton shirt is also shedding. Yes. And the potential problems with that would be whatever it was dyed with or any other chemicals that were used in manufacturing. And then, yes, and then once it's in the environment, what it is also absorbing in that space, right? So if those okay. fibers are washed mm-hmm. and they're ending up in an agricultural field where there are pesticides, is it absorbing any of those pesticides? Is mm-hmm. it absorbing things like metals, right? Like it's almost like a Velcro of sorts mm-hmm. where it's like it can pick up the things that are out in the environment. And if those are then ending up in our food and our drinking water, there could be harm not only just from like a plastic-based material, but from the things that are attached to the plastic. In general, though, isn't it true that cotton and wool or hemp or whatever, you know, these natural products are going to break down quickly, whereas the plastics from the polyester from a persistence perspective, the natural yeah. fibers absolutely do break down faster. Okay. I'm just saying fragmentation in general, right, could be mm. a challenge. Okay. And some of the solutions for kind of like the textile mills and as brands are thinking about solutions is that like capture of those fibers at a textile mill level um, could address both, right? And so it's like it doesn't actually have to be a plastic specific solution to work and have benefits for the environment. Do you, how do you feel about um, the filters that you can buy for your own washing machine or the bags and balls you can put in your washing machine? Yeah, so I think that all of those, right, are great kind of consumer solutions. Some of them are more effective than others. So um, one of the interventions that we modeled in the paper that you mentioned, Christina, was like, okay, we now know that X amount of microfibers are entering California's lands. 
what interventions would be most effective at reducing that. And so we looked at kind of the behavior change that I mentioned. So it's like colder, shorter um, loads. We looked at the in-washer solutions. So like the guppy and cora balls. We also looked at the kind of inline, as we call them. So it's like the ones that you actually attach to the hose where the water leaves your washer. Oh. And those are actually some of the most effective, right, is is some of those ones. They have the potential to capture um, a much higher percentage. Um, And there's also, it's like in Japan, there's a very small subset of the U.S. market. And in Europe, they're actually starting to build filters into washing machines. And so those kind of filtration technologies tend to be a little bit more effective. But any anything is better than like the status quo, right? So that's always what I think, like perfect can't be the enemy of the good. Like, you know, we don't have to have a perfect solution to address that now and then continue to build. So on this one, like, yes, we can think about putting filters in our washing machines now. We can think about putting filters in the facilities where we're actually designing and dying and like addressing that. And then maybe even longer, right, is thinking about fabric redesign. How do we also create fabrics that just shed less? So it's like they're shedding less, we're capturing more, and all of it starts. And then we're also thinking consciously about the kind of materials that we want to, you know, buy as consumers, which it can impact the market. And so all of it kind of really works together in a nice ecosystem to address the problem. But like one of us, one of those in isolation isn't going to fully move the needle on the problem. Alexis, you mentioned, uh, or maybe Christina mentioned in the intro, that you led the way in drafting some of the most sweeping plastics legislation um, that the United States has ever seen in California, the California SB 54 bill uh, that Gavin Newsom signed in right before um, another bill could be introduced. A, I want to hear about I want to hear about some of the moving parts of getting this bill passed, just out of curiosity, directly from you. I also want to know sort of how you view where policy plays a, has a place in this type of, in what you're trying to accomplish and how California specifically, why Cal, it's important that California passes this kind of policy. Yeah. So I can answer the second one first, because it's yeah. probably shorter, and then love to tell like, you know, snippets of the story on like the policy push. It was exciting and exhausting and like all of the things combined. Um, So I think the why California, right? Like from an economic perspective, right? We hold a very large market share. And so solutions that we build here do have the potential to scale across the nation, across the globe, just via kind of like market-based decisions, right? If a company has to change something for California, they might change it across their whole product line. And so there's that. There's also the fact that California has a track record of pushing on the edge of a lot of environmental challenges. Um, Plastics, you know, being an example with this recent bill that we've passed of like a big issue that we finally have started to unstick. And so I think there's just kind of endless potential, especially coming off of that big policy win for California to continue to kind of like continue to be like, okay, we've addressed this problem in one sector. It's like, how many other sectors is plastics problem in? And can we take lessons learned from what we've just done to come up with a similar suite um, of solutions? That being said, um, and kind of echoing back on one of the points that I always like to hammer home is that like policy is one tool. It's not the only tool. And so while I do a lot of policy-based work and do that with a number of, you know, like with our external affairs team as lobbyists, um, there are many other kind of like partner-led or business-driven solutions that don't require a bill change. It just requires kind of a strong science-driven kind of target and accountability towards meeting that goal and a commitment 
right? That like, if we don't meet that goal, like what is our plan B? How are we going to address this? So that it's, you know, not an empty promise. It's actually something that people feel comfortable and like believe that they can get behind, right? That, oh, this is the right pathway and solution. Um, so, so there's that, right? Like I believe in bills, but I don't think it's the only thing. And I think there's a lot of power in a very motivated or progressive kind of business leading the charge. Um, and then kind of on the SB 54 side of things, like it was very exciting and I still feel very humbled to have been a part of that, you know, policy push for a lot of people. The plastic pollution crisis is just too big, right? It feels like, how do I make a difference as an individual? We can never do anything that's big enough. If we go after forks this year, we're going to have to go after straws this year. And like, we're like, we will lose, you know, like we will never build something big enough. And so for a lot of people, they thought like, we have to take a piecemeal approach. We have to be patient. And I think after a couple of years of trying to be patient, we were like, no, we have to still be bold. Californians care about this. Polling tells us that Californians care about this. We care about this. And the threats, like, yes, it's always compelling for people to think about the threats to oceans, but also the threats to communities and, like, which communities are disproportionately impacted by this plastic problem. And, like, it is often not the pristine coastal communities, right? Like, these refineries, because oil is plastic-based, like, where do those get cited? Where is waste ending up? Um, and so I think it was kind of a variety of all of these, like, it harms the environment, it harms people, and... You know, we could be more responsible about how we're redesigning this and creating products that are reusable, recyclable. And so Senator Ben Allen, you know, brought a number of us back to the table who had been very engaged on this topic. We were beginning to run a ballot initiative in California based on that polling. We're like, okay, if we can't get it done in the legislature, let's put it before the people and let them vote. He brought a number of us back. We had some hard conversations, but again, I think we listened and we tried to build solutions that worked for industry, that worked and made, you know, again, you can't make everyone happy, but good portions of the environmental community happy, um, that created space and funding for the environmental justice community, that acknowledged past harm and threats, and was taking a step in the right direction. Again, could we go farther on any of these solutions? Yes. Um, but it kind of drew a line in the sand on, we now will commit to reducing the amount of plastic pollution, right? So setting that source reduction target, setting circularity goals to make sure that what we are producing can be recaptured, can be reused, that we have the recycling infrastructure in place to actually capture it, which we've seen dwindling over time. So it was a it was a sprint to the finish on any given day in the last two weeks. I was like, the bill is dead. The bill is oh, dead. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, it's back. Oh, no. Okay. These people are on board. Now these people are off. And it was just like a back and forth and like a lot of outreach, but there were so many committed people that were involved and thoughtful people. And like, we worked, we were able to work across the aisle. We were able to work across sectors. And I think it set a new model for how you create lasting policy change, right? Like people need to talk to each other. They can't be just lobbying against each other, right? Like I think the model of bringing everyone into a room, which we did, you know, virtually and in person for months, really made a difference. Um, And so, you know, when on June 30th, when that bill got signed and, you know, we all met up after, there was just like, there was joy because we felt like we had done something big and we had done something big. I have to remind myself, it happened in June, but I'm like, this is still a huge deal. 
and other states and other nations can look to this as a starting point, right? Go, I want people to go even bigger on this, right? Like if you don't think it went far enough, go farther in your policy, right? Like push the edge. Um, So yeah, very, very exciting. And I think gave us the energy to be like, change is possible. And now which sector are we going to next, right? Like in my mind, and I'm like, okay, let's like get something big done on microfiber pollution. I love that. Can you share some of the measures that you are discussing with some of your brand partners or um, ways that they can change their processes to help resolve this issue? Yeah. So, I mean, we're still really early days and kind of building out like a list of kind of partners um, on the ground. And so we're just in really early conversations. Again, to that point about like, we're trying to get to know people. We're trying to get them to know us because TNC um, has been working on plastics for about four years now. So we're kind of new. Um, we're no stranger to the environmental sector, right? We've been around since the 50s. Uh, so people know us, but not on this topic. And so we want to make sure that we're thoughtfully building the level of trust, making sure that people kind of know our brand and our MO um, and doing that. And that's a long way to get to your question, which is like, what are the types of solutions that we're thinking about? I think we're kind of open and flexible, right? Because there are a variety of pathways to get to the end outcome, which is we want fewer microfibers in the environment. We want to make sure that we're mitigating that harm. And so, yes, that down the line can look like decisions around like which materials are you using and sourcing? Are they higher shed fabrics? Are they lower shed fabrics? Um, What is your visibility into your supply chain? Can you be having conversations with textile mills that you partner with around exploring some of the filtration technologies that are on the market, right? Like, because they're used in wastewater treatment plants in some places, there's actually an ability to leverage some of those technologies available now on the market in those facilities if there's a willingness, right, and an an interest. And so are they aware are they willing to explore that to address this threat? Um, so yeah, I think there's kind of a couple of pathways and then just having the conversations, right? Like how do you then set the goals and metrics? Like based on the information we have, we can always keep learning. The scientists and me is like, we can always keep learning. We can always keep perfecting. But for really big environmental threats, we also have to like learn and do along the way, right? Like create adaptive frameworks so that like We can mitigate the immediate harms now and then perfect, right, as we learn more. I don't think we have to wait for perfect solutions before we intervene, because I think the environmental threats get away from us that way. And it's also a space for people who don't want to create change to stall, right? Like to be like, okay, let's do another pilot. Let's do another experiment. And you get to a point at which there are diminishing returns or just disproportionate harm, right, that's being done from doing nothing. Actually, that leads to one of my other questions is you spent much of your career working with NGOs. How do you view their role in mitigating um, environmental harms? Do you like that there's sort of, is there sort of a spirit across NGOs of, yes, perfection is the enemy of good and um, we can change course along the way, but we have to do something now rather than maybe working uh, as an academic scientist in researching and studying? Do you feel like you're able to accomplish more sort of in that framework? Yeah. So in, in some ways, I feel like it allows me to be at the sweet spot. Like when I first finished grad school and I was working for the government, I felt like there was a box, right? Like You can do any intervention that falls within this box, but you will reach a point, right, at which, like, you're pushing too far or too fast, right? And, like, 
you have to balance the needs of blah, blah, blah. Um, and these are the rules of engagement. And I often found myself like pushing towards the end of that box, right? Yeah. So I'm like, having worked within within government, I think is important because it allowed me to like actually understand the constraints, right? Like, and some of those are very real, right? Whether it's just like the amount of time that it takes to go through internal approvals, the like process of, you know, like doing public outreach and how that gets fed in and the like length of time on public, co- like all of those are very real. And then limitation of like access to science, right? Like I was often, you know, reaching out to friends who were academics or grad students still to be like, hey, can you get me this paper? I was like, I don't actually have access to it, even though I want it, right? Um, So I think there were challenges there. And then on just purely being an academic, I felt like I did not know or I wasn't trained to know how to get that information out there so that it was meaningful. So I was doing conservation research, but it took like building out a committee of, you know, academics who were like traditional and non-traditional and, you know, and that some of them had worked for government some of them had worked for nonprofits to help me understand how to package my science so that it was getting there to the meeting where they were making a decision on research that I would care about. So I think it was like, it's been learning academia, learning a little bit how government works, that then in working at a nonprofit, when I have conversations with people from those sectors, I can have very genuine conversations because I understand the constraints. And I can be creative because understanding some of those systems, right? I'm like, okay, this is a real limitation, but also couldn't we do this? Like, I remember, you know, it's like thinking of the exceptions to the rules and like when you can be flexible and creative. And so I think a really science-driven, like thoughtful NGO can do a lot of really great work in the environmental sector. Um, But again, that takes listening and having the hard conversations. Um, And all of us aren't the same, right? Like, there's a spectrum, and in some ways, we need the universe of the most liberal environmental NGOs and the most conservative all working together to push some of these goals forward, right? Because there will be tables where I'm sitting, and I may sound like a quack well relative to someone <laughs> who's like farther to my right, right? But I'm like, if I'm somewhere in the middle, right, like those other people may be pushing too far, and so my solution actually lands very well in that universe, So, you know, I think we all play in the same sandbox and we learn, you know, from engaging with others, like how to best kind of position ourselves. But yeah, I think there's a lot of power in environmental nonprofits. And I think that, you know, this example from plastics came from us continuing to be like, there's a problem here, we need to solve it. And that created enough buzz that it brought decision makers and companies to that table to have like honest conversations with us. Well, it does get your attention when you find out that apples and carrots contain microplastics. I mean, that's mind-boggling. I read somewhere, by the way, that, that that happens because they draw it in through the water, the plant as it's growing. Is that right? So it's actually, it's moving through root systems. Yeah. So it's like, if those plastics are in the soil, if they're in the water, um, some of them are of a small enough size, again, that they can move through tissues. And so that's how they're entering the tissues of plants that we eat. And it's you know, a similar mechanism for kind of when we're inhaling and drinking is that if it's small enough, it can cross that cellular barrier and actually end up in all of the kind of horrific plates, like your spleen, your kidney, your lot, like all of, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, right? Cause you're like, am I plastic? Am, am I, I plastic? bionic in some way? Am like, I how long is it staying? Does it get flushed? 90% up, you know? water and 5% plastic. There's so, there's so many questions, I think. And, and it's important that we have foundational science that continues to tell us more. But again, like to the point of like, 
it's probably not a net positive that we've got plastic. Like, let's work on the precautionary principle and try to avoid it being there in the first place. Do you know any of any research or ongoing research uh, that is promising about the health implications of microfiber, microfibers in our bodies? I can't think of one off of the top of my head that, again, has the length of time that I know I'd be curious about seeing, right? It's not just that we want the snapshot of our plastics present. Like, yes, that's what a lot of these studies are telling us. It's not necessarily the temporal. It's the we know that in this snippet of time for this study, like there are plastics, understanding how they persist over time, right? Those are the long-term studies that we don't have yet and can't have yet. Because I think a lot of people forget that um, the plastic crisis is a really new crisis, right? Like in the 50s, like my mom was born in the 1950s. And, you know, they had their stuff in aluminum and glass and like plastic really has scaled up over the past 70 years and is continuing to accelerate because it's it's cost effective. It's light. You can make it look like anything you want. So from a marketing perspective, right, I'm like, I want this bottle to be shiny and sparkly with purple spots like you can do that in a way. But I don't think in that creativity and design we were managing for the potential impacts. Right. We weren't like and what happens when that petroleum-based product then is out of the environment. like, And I think we have to be thinking about that when we're innovative. So when people ask me like, okay, well, let's talk alternatives to plastics. I'm like, let's, but let's be as thoughtful and diligent now so that we aren't causing a new potential problem, right? Like we want to manage unintended consequences that we've seen from other environmental challenges. You mentioned higher shed fabrics and lower shed fabrics. I'm curious, how, how would a designer or a consumer know when selecting fabric, whether it was high shed or low shed? Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of brands that I think are starting to ask that question of their own product lines, right? So they're starting to do some of the really thoughtful like pilots around, okay, what are the shed rates of the various materials that we're using and sourcing? And then they can kind of make very measured like decisions around, are we comfortable with that? And that can be quantitative, that can be qualitative in nature, right? Like by visualizing it, they can kind of make a comfort or judgment call. The science is getting better around how we quantify the volume of microplastics that are in, you know, like a water sample, for instance, but they're not all perfect. Some tell us like the amount, but not the types. Um, And so that's a challenge, right? We're like, okay, there's lots of pieces of plastic in there. Whose plastic is this? Is this you textile? <laughs> is this oh. you like foodware? Is this you yeah. ag, right? And so that <laughs> that matters too. Um, because you want to address like who, who are the biggest emitters. But also, if we know that it's something that's cross-sectoral, right, then it's like design the solutions for your industry. And then we can each kind of break down the, the overall part of the problem. I feel like in 50 years, the way that we feel like about asbestos and lead mm-hmm. and tobacco now... In 50 years, we would be like, you guys put plastic on your skin yeah. and drank from Shut it? Up. I like- was having the exact same thought <laughs> yesterday. True. I was opening a milk jug and I was like, this isn't going to be around in 50 years. Like, this can't be. Like, I mean, <laughs> this can't, can't exist in 50 years. Let's hope not. I'm going to be Miss Practicality here then. Last question. Where do I get the filter for my washing machine? Mm. Can I buy that on Amazon.com? I'm pretty sure that you can. What do I look? Um, what do I search for? Um, so there are a couple of different brands. The one that's coming to mind has been used in a number of studies coming out of some of the Canadian researchers. So they used a filtrol, F-I-L-T-R-O-L. Okay. And it's like one of many 
filters, but that one is just coming to mind because it's been like referenced in the methods, right? That it's like, this was used on washing machines across this community in Canada. We showed that it was effective in reducing like microfiber, you know, retention. And so if you're handy, these types of filters can be applied by you. I am not handy. So I'm like, you might want to bring in your friendly plumber. I have a handyman. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To install it onto your like outhose. Um, But yeah, those solutions in home exist. I think getting to a place where we're moving towards like requirements around having those built into washers or requiring those available solutions to be used in like broader commercial facilities, right? Is like- That's what you want. The ideal, right? Like when you get to scale on that, but you doing that still makes a difference in reducing microfiber emissions. Well, I want to eat an apple without plastic in it. So (laughs) I'm there for that. Alexis, thank you so much. Honestly, I keep wanting to call, I I, I want to call you Dr. Jackson. Don't do it. A little bit more. No, 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 no. You earned that. You You earned that. Dr. Jackson, thank you very much for joining Hot Buttons today. This was awesome. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Well, that was super. I'm jealous that you guys got to do. She is obviously. I don't. What was yeah. what was the South by thing that you guys did together? We did a fashion and sustainability panel six months ago in, at South by Southwest. Um, I was a moderator, and uh, Rachel and Alexis were on the panel, um, and it was great. Sheila invited yeah. me to that panel, and Alexis <laughs> was on the panel, and the rest and I got is to history. meet Sheila, and I got That's a right. job through. To, Alexis hired me to to work with her. So that's right. It, it was meant to be, basically. Making connections happen. Yeah, it was meant exactly. to be. And it's all owed to Shilla. So thank you, Shilla. There you go. <laughs> and the power of South By. Yeah. Don't you feel better about the future that Dr. Jackson is is working on yes. it and working on yeah. these solutions? I feel so much hands. better. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yes, exactly. I do. And I'm going to get a filter for my washing machine, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's yes. That was my selfish question. <laughs> Um, Okay, I think it's time for us to move on to what's pushing our buttons. Who's got one? Who's got a hot button? You said you had a great one, so I'm curious. Well, I don't know if it's great. I'm like wound up about Elon Musk and Twitter. Oh, mine was going to be the same. Let's talk about it. Well, we'll so we've got a thing. Yeah. Like I was looking at my blue check mark, which I never asked for, and (laughs) like. He's going to charge me 20 bucks a month for that thing? I'm not oh, paying 20 is? bucks a month for that. Well, that was the latest rumor yesterday. He, there were some some reports that he's going to charge people for their I think he said blue- $8 today. But oh. yeah, he wants to charge verified users to keep their blue check. Um, you know, the whole idea of verification, I think it came about because, was it a senator? A politician sued Twitter because there were all these fake accounts mm. pretending oh, to be them. And uh-huh. and so Twitter came up with that as a very good solution to know that you're really hearing from the person Got you think it. you're hearing from, right? Somebody who's been verified. And if anybody can just pay eight bucks a month to get a blue check, then the whole right. point of that is out the window. From a business perspective, I'm, I'm confused because I feel like the scale of the problem that he has to solve is so much bigger than the few million dollars that he might make yeah. off of charging for verification. Right. So. Uh, to me, I mean, he, he feels, I don't particularly like him, but he feels smarter to me than to be focusing on something that in the scale of things is does not feel like should be getting this amount of his attention and energy. So I don't know. I just feel like it's very casual. I don't think he would treat Starlink like this. I don't think he treats Tesla like this. It seems like he's almost treating his early, his first few days in his seat there as though it's a pet project that he's going yeah. to outsource 
outsource decisions and kind of make fun of. So what's the alternative? If we're if we're going to abandon Twitter, where do we go? Those of us Parler. who don't. That's the problem. Yeah. Parler. Oh, just God. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. That's the problem. And that's why it's, you know, it's so difficult to build a social media platform. And then um, it's very hard to leave because where are you going to rebuild that audience and that connection? I yeah. mean, for you, Christina, you have a pretty significant following. Do you feel like Twitter is important to you and your platform? I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, my Twitter started you know, as a fashion journalist, and and but half of my conversations have nothing to do with that anymore, just because I enjoy the dialogue so much. And there's all these people that I know, I've never met them in my life, but I've been talking to them for years now on Twitter. It's not even just my professional, how do I communicate to my following? It's just like, I use it for life. I actually do. Right. Um, I have a non-Elon Musk related hot button. Oh, yes. Thank God. We're recording the day after Halloween. I'm exhausted because oh. <laughs> we it was it was a lot of uh, walking around neighborhoods with my two kiddos. Mm-hmm. Um, one was a pink spider, and the other one was a ninja. Ooh. Um, a pink spider. I pink love spider. That. He was. I know he he's that was our three year old, and he was extremely specific. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> Did you have to make this costume? This bodes well. Yes. Yeah, so we had to. I agree. I agree. So we did. He knows what he wants. uh, We had to dye. There's no such thing, obviously, as a pink spider. So we had to dye a a regular spider pink. But (laughs) but so I have candy on my mind. And this fact totally tickles my brain, which is a BBC documentary um, exposed the fact, I think in 2015, something like that, that the inside layers of Kit Kats are made from recycled Kit Kats. What? Yes. What? Wait, Sheila. I Sheila. A. I love this, and I want to know more. But B. I, so this this is another hot button. I forgot. I forgot to mention. Someone posted on LinkedIn that like most cheap candy is made by child labor. Have you heard this? Like it has similar issues oh, in God. the supply chain as fast fashion. So I, that, I I I just like why can't we have good things? A. Right. And, exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. And like, can't even enjoy candy. Yeah. yeah. And recycled just, Kit Kat innards. What? Yeah. That's <laughs> go back they, to the like, like the Kit Kats <laughs> that they that can't be sold. They will like they like what they came out a regular. You know, something happened. They'll mash them up and they make them the filling <laughs> in their Kit Kats. And so I was like, this is like the candy of sustainability. That's <laughs> <laughs> Sustainable, not ethical. <laughs> all for the show. Please support us on Twitter at Hot Buttons Pod, now on Instagram at hotbuttons.pod, or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our new call-in line. It's at 508-622-5361. Give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate 
climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We will catch up with you next week. And three of us are wearing almost yellow. Like, look at us matching. Like, I very, nobody told me. Mood. You guys didn't tell me. It's Halloween. <laughs> we, it's we Halloween. had a text chain. It's very autumn. <laughs>